Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. What I want to talk about today is St. John Paul II's brilliant genius plan for the church in the third millennium. This is something he unveiled in 2001, so 20 years ago, and it was amazing, like much of the stuff that he did. The problem was, I don't think anybody took him up on it. And what we've seen instead is kind of a disaster. You saw 20 years ago, we talked about 9-11, which kind of convinced people that the religion was at fault. We Then we had the sex abuse crisis, which made people think, well, Catholics are a problem. And then you had the rise of the nuns, the people claiming no religion. And you saw people just hemorrhaging from the Catholic Church. And I'd like to ask, well, what if we had actually done what St. John Paul II said? And better than that, what if we start doing it now? Put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. Those are Jesus' words, but St. John Paul II kind of made them a catchphrase for himself. He always used to say, put out into the deep, duke in altum. Well, he made a very practical plan to go out into the deep for the year 2001. Uh, And he asked for this to kind of be the controlling plan for the church in the new millennium. Uh, And John Paul II is brilliant, not just in the fact that he thought of great things and he was personally inspirational. He actually did amazing things to back up his ideas. Uh, So for instance, he wanted young people to rediscover the faith. So he created the World Youth Days and people would show up at these things, look around and realize, oh my gosh, I'm not the only young person in the church. He wanted Catholics to follow the magisterium, so he actually created the universal catechism. Before that, it was hard to tell what the church believed and whether somebody was on the same page as the church. After that, it's impossible not to. He wanted to say every one of us, regardless of where we lived, is an integral part of the church. And the way he did that was actually show up where we live. I remember seeing him in San Francisco. I remember he was in Arizona. Uh, I saw him in Washington, D.C. John Paul II showed up all over the world, and that showed people that the church cared about them, regardless of where they were. He asked Catholics to rediscover Christ, but instead of just doing that, he rebranded the whole year 2000, which everybody was so focused on, into a jubilee year devoted to Jesus Christ. After all, it's 2,000 years since Jesus was born. That's what the year meant. He prepared for that year for three years, and then once it was over, he unveiled this brilliant plan. The plan was called At the Beginning of the Millennium. In revisiting St. John Paul II's plan, we can feel exactly like Simon. When Jesus said, put out into the deep, he said, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. Well, we've spent the last 20 years, and things have not gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. But we have to remember what Peter said next to Jesus, but at your word, I will let down my nets. So at his word, at Jesus's word, we should let down our nets for a catch. And John Paul II's very simple plan gives us an extraordinary way to do just that. I'll go over the plan's five points really quick, and then I'll go through them one by one. 
His first point is to promote prayer. Second, the Sunday Eucharist, and that Sunday part is important. Third is the sacrament of confession. Fourth is the scriptures. And fifth, loving service to one another and to the poor. So let's start with the very first one, with prayer. Prayer was a constant theme throughout the Jubilee year, and it was a constant theme after the Jubilee year also. Pope John Paul II created facts to put all of these things into place. First, what he did was do a whole series of Wednesday audience addresses on prayer. He focused on the breviary and the Psalms and tried to call people back to prayer. The next thing he did was create a year of the rosary. And in this year of the rosary, he didn't just say, please, please, please pray the rosary more, although he did say that. He also added five mysteries to the rosary, the luminous mysteries. These are mysteries that I guess had been prayed by people throughout time. I had never heard of them until that year, and I don't think many Catholics had. But by adding five mysteries to the rosary, he piqued people's curiosity. They thought, well, I I might as well try out these new mysteries. So they returned to the rosary in order to try them out. Prayer is absolutely fundamental to his program, he said. After spending a year celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, he in a special way focused on the face of Jesus in the letter. And he said, we have to contemplate the face of Jesus. We have to become Jesus's friend. We have to meet him in prayer. And only from that point could we change the world. The next point of his plan was to promote Sunday Mass. And I think this is brilliant. He doesn't say that he wants people to go to daily Mass. He doesn't ask them to do the First Friday devotion. He doesn't ask for Eucharistic adoration. He asks for the bare minimum, Sunday Mass. But if we think that Sunday Mass is not that big of a deal, then we're making a huge mistake. It is a big deal for a family to commit to go to Sunday Mass no matter what, every Sunday, transforms their life. It suddenly makes Jesus their anchor and their lodestar. It makes the Sunday Mass the one appointment that they have to keep each week. It makes the Sunday Mass the one time they spend quality time on an outing with their family each week. It makes Sunday Mass the one time they meet and hang out with their neighbors. It makes Sunday Mass the one time they sing in public. It makes Sunday Mass the one time they hear a talk about Scripture in public. Going to Sunday Mass is a huge deal. John Paul II knew that and begged Christians to please, please, please promote it. We hear a lot of complaints in the Catholic media about how the church hasn't accomplished this and it's made that mistake and it's doing this wrong. But I wonder what would happen if instead of complaining about the Catholic Church, we were each finding creative ways to invite people to Sunday Mass. Oh my gosh, it would transform not just the church, it would transform the world. Here's a couple of ways to kind of promote uh, Sunday Mass that I scratched down. Tell people that it's great family time, it gets everybody together. Tell people it helps deal with anxiety. I uh, know that there's a lot of anxiety about the future, but when you come together with a group of people and kind of put the future in God's hands, it makes that go a lot better. It takes a load off of your mind. You get free scripture lessons. Your example will change people. Believe me, your neighbors notice when you go to Sunday Mass, and believe me, it makes them reconsider whether they should be going also. A couple more reasons. Jesus is truly present at Mass. We believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It's not just a symbol of him. It is him 
actually. That's why the church calls Sunday Mass the summit toward which the church's action tends, and at the same time, the source from which comes all of her strength. So this is the source of our strength during the week. It's also the summit of every week, right? It also is a great way to honor God. You know, he only gave us 10 things to do, right? The 10 commandments after creating us and giving us every single good thing that we've ever experienced. He said, do these 10 things. And one of those is the third commandment, which says that you have to go to mass every Sunday. It says, keep holy the Sabbath. For us, that means you have to go to mass. Last, it was his dying wish, right? If you had a friend who fell on a grenade and said right before he died, come visit my grave each Sunday, you would totally go and visit his grave each Sunday. Well, that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ, on the night before he died, said, do this in remembrance of me. And the way we do that is to go to Mass each Sunday. So Sunday Mass is an easy sell. It's a great way to get people involved in the church have them over for brunch afterwards, and it's a nice family day. There's no reason we shouldn't be promoting it more. His second priority was confession. He said the bishops should have courage, confidence, and creativity in reestablishing the sacrament of reconciliation in their diocese. Uh, whenever John Paul II talked about a crisis in the church, it was never the same crisis in the church that everyone else was talking about. He meant the crisis of the confessional, where you had many parishes across the world who frankly just weren't offering confession or were offering it for a half an hour on a Saturday afternoon for a parish that is enormous, where it couldn't possibly be appropriate for all of the sinning that's going on in that parish for that one half hour, right? He said, I feel a pressing need to urge priests uh, to rediscover for themselves and help others rediscover the beauty of the Sacrament of Reconciliation. In a 2003 Eucharistic encyclical, uh, Pope John Paul II used this remarkable formal language that's rarely used by popes in order to kind of reestablish the, the, a fact of the Catholic Church. What he said is, I therefore desire to reaffirm that in the church there remains in force now and in the future the rule by which the Council of Trent gave concrete expression to the Apostle Paul's stern warning that in order to receive the Eucharist in a worthy manner, one must first confess one's sins when one is aware of mortal sin. So he made a huge deal out of the fact that, yes, it's still true that you have to go to confession before you can receive communion. He made such a big deal out of it that the U.S. bishops created a document in 2006 called Happy Are Those Who Are Called to His Supper. And that document listed a number of sins that we commit that could be mortal. Now, to have a mortal sin, you have to have grave matter, so it has to be a serious sin. You have to know that it's grave matter, so you have to know it's a serious sin. And you have to have full consent of your will. That means you have to do it willingly, right? And they listed a number of sins that we all fall into, including missing Sunday Mass that are grave matter and would bar us from communion, right? So Pope John Paul II saw the connection between the crisis in the confessional and the crisis of the sex abuse scandal. Because priests know this, and if a priest is willing to give communion to people who he knows a good percentage of are in a state of mortal sin, then that's going to lead him to not care about sin and other aspects of his life. 
So how do you promote confession to somebody? Well, there's a whole list of reasons on the Ex Corde prayer resources page. Uh, I think it's uh, eight reasons to return to confession. I'll give you a few of them here now. For one, sin aggravates you, right? Uh, people complain about anxiety all the time, and they don't realize that sin is a major cause of anxiety. You're built to live in the world that God made, and he gave us the commandments and the other uh, rules and regulations that we have to follow, not because they're extrinsic to us, but because they show us how to be happy. And if you're not living according to those rules, you're not going to be happy. And if you did something wrong that you feel guilty about, you're not going to be happy. The way to end that is to go to confession. Sin also makes you more aggravating. Uh, Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. And the catechism said, uh, sin creates a proclivity to sin, right? So this is what happens when you sin. People don't just lie, they become liars. People don't just steal, they become thieves. Making a clean break from sin is the only way to redefine yourself for who you really are, right? And the only way to do that is confession. Confession helps you know yourself. We often get our vision of ourselves wrong. We think of ourselves as wonderful and great. Well, a good examination of conscience will correct that. Or we think of ourselves as terrible and uh, worthless. Well, you know, hearing absolution from a priest will, co will correct that. Confession helps children. There's this sense that taking kids to confession will give them a guilt trip. Well, that's not the case at all. It's just the opposite. Kids feel guilty about things they do, and they don't know what to do about it. Maybe it's something that they want to bring up, but they are afraid to bring up with their parents. Well, confession gives them a place to talk to a kindly adult who will tell them at the end of their discussion, you are forgiven of this sin. You may go in peace, right? And if you look under Ex Corde uh, Prayer Resources, we have a great examination of conscience for children. You know, the major reason to go back to confession is that it's absolutely required. It's required to receive communion, as we've already seen, but it's also required to go to heaven. As the Catechism puts it, mortal sin that's unconfessed causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. So by all means, invite somebody back to confession. They will thank you for it in this life, and they will thank you for it in the next life. You know, I've had a few occasions where somebody I spoke to has re turned to confession, and there's no greater feeling in the world. There's no greater accomplishment in the world than to know that you've brought somebody's soul back to Jesus Christ. I'm tearing up just thinking about it. And when I did this, it didn't happen because I gave an amazing talk at some conference. It happened just by talking to people about confession and casual conversation. And they suddenly remember, oh my gosh, that's right. I haven't been to confession in years. Or they say, really? You have to go to confession still? And as soon as they know, they go, right? Uh, so be that person in as many people's lives as, as you can. So I highly, highly recommend telling people when they ask you, hey, how did your weekend go? A great answer is, it was awesome. <laughs> I went to confession, right? His fourth point is to know scripture, to understand scripture yourself and to proclaim it to others. 
It's remarkable how in the past 20 years, what Pope John Paul II said about scripture has played out whether intentionally or not. He specifically asked people to rediscover uh, Lexio Divina, and today all sorts of apps are promoting Lexio Divina. He also asks people to become uh, servants of the word. He says it shouldn't just be specialists who understand scripture. And there's the, all these remarkable Bible apostolates springing up all over the country and all over the internet. We can't even imagine the good that this will do. Pope John Paul II said that the word of God sown in good soil will yield a hundredfold. I always go back to Isaiah where God says, when my word goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Knowing scripture is absolutely critical. To be happy, you have to go to heaven. To go to heaven, you have to do God's will. To do God's will, you have to love God. To love God, you have to know him. To know him, you have to encounter him, to meet him and see how he acts. To encounter him and see how he acts, you have to read scripture, right? Uh, it's important to realize that scripture forms your mind to think the way God thinks. Where we spend most of our time with our brain is going to affect the way we think. If you spend most of your time watching TikTok, your brain is going to be very superficial. If you spend most of your time watching cable news, your brain is going to be very political and angry. Uh, if you spend all of your time with pornography, your brain is going to be in a place that's going to make you it make it difficult for you to have a proper relationship with anybody. But if you spend your time in scripture, you're spending your time seeing how God acts and seeing how he reacts. You're probably going to come across a lot of things that alarm you or surprise you, and you're going to look for answers, and that's going to shape the way you think and what you know about yourself and about God. St. Jerome said, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, and this is exactly what he meant. I remember uh, during when I got COVID-19 about a year ago, I had, as I mentioned before, this anxiety bordering on despair that is one of those symptoms of COVID that they don't tell you about till you have it. Uh, but what saved me was reading the Psalms. What I did is I put my phone as far away from me as I could, so I couldn't read the news. And instead, I picked up my Bible and I opened it to the Psalms. And I started reading Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. And I noticed that these people were facing the same thing that I was facing. They were facing personal turmoil. They were seeing turmoil in the world. They were facing sickness. They were facing fever and chills like I was. Uh, and they were finding hope in God. It recast the whole way I looked at who I was and where I was in the universe. Okay, so his last point, his fifth point is service. He says to be a witness to love and stake everything on charity, right? He has a lot of other stuff in the document uh, that you'll find that is kind of for bishops and for civil authorities to look at. But I think the one that's kind of where he lands and where lay people have the biggest shot at getting some of this done is this be a witness to love and stake everything on charity. And it's kind of remarkable, in fact, how he comes to some of the same conclusions we came to when we were doing the Transforming Culture in America plan. Uh, he sees what people need is more community. Uh, he talks about incivility and politics. He talks about bioethics. He talks about the environment. He talks about faith and reason. But like I say, 
what was most impactful for me was this uh, stake everything on charity. And what he does is he cites the last judgment in Matthew. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And he says, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me, ill and you cared for me, in prison and you visited me. Uh, and the people don't know what he's talking about. They don't remember doing that. He said, as long as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, right? And then those who didn't do all of those things, he calls the goats and they go off to eternal hellfire, right? Uh, I love what Archbishop Chaput says about Matthew 25. He says, it's very clear, if you don't serve the poor, you will go to hell, right? Uh, so John Paul II asks in the plan to ensure that in every Christian community, the poor feel at home. He tied it to the new evangelization, saying that it's only if we have charity in our works that people will see the charity in our words, right? So it's critically, critically important that we serve the poor. Again, he followed this up with facts. In 2003, on World Mission Sunday, he beatified Mother Teresa, who had recently died, and called her an icon of the Good Samaritan. In 2005, when Pope John Paul II died, he left behind plans that he had to write a whole encyclical on charity, and it ended up being used by Pope Benedict XVI for the encyclical, his first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love. So how do we do this? First of all, I think it's important to realize that we are already doing this, right? There's a Pew study released in January of 2019 that showed something we often forget or deny. That's that actively religious people are far more charitable than non-religious people. They're more active in religious organizations that are charitable, of course, but they're also more active in non-religious community organizations by about 20%. They're more likely to give even to non-religious charities like the American Cancer Society. They're also more likely to vote. They're also more likely to say they're very happy. And they're also more likely to avoid smoking and excessive drinking. So you've got that too. And I love what Nikki Haley, who's a former governor of South Carolina and a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, said at a Catholic dinner in uh, 2018. And she's not Catholic, but she was invited to speak. And she said in her time as a UN ambassador, I've been to some truly dark places. I've been to the border between Colombia and Venezuela, where people walk three hours each day in the blazing sun to get the only meal that they will have that day. Who's giving that meal? The Catholic Church, she said. She said she's been to refugee camps in Central America where young boys are kidnapped and forced to become child soldiers and where young girls are raped as a matter of routine. She said, who is in the forefront of changing this culture of corruption and violence? The Catholic Church. She said that these kind of everyday miracles of the Catholic Church are helping millions of desperate people. I personally am convinced that if the 20th century hadn't become darkened by the sex abuse scandals, we would be known as the Church of Service, and that would be our brand today. I love all of Father Michael Gately's books, but my favorite book by him is You Did It to Me. It's a book that's a kind of a practical guide to the works of mercy. 
right? I've been very convicted by what Dorothy Day said, that a Catholic should perform a work of mercy every day. And so my examination of conscience each night is, well, what work of mercy did I do today? And Father Michael Gately's book is extremely helpful in that regard. So put out into the deep, do what Pope John Paul II said 20 years ago. Uh, no, we haven't done it yet. We've toiled and gotten nothing. Well, now is the time to actually do what we were told, right? Uh, promote prayer, promote Sunday Mass, promote confession, promote scripture, and promote service. And I think we'll be surprised at what happens when we do this. And I think it's a when, not an if. The Catholic Church is here to change the world, not the other way around. And this is exactly how the Catholic Church will change the world. You know, the church is here to save us. I know a lot of people think they're here to save the church, but we, for one, can start by saying, no, the church is here to save us. And these five ways are the way that it does just that. So the answer is easy and it's not that big of a deal, right? These basic practices are simple to explain. They're an easy sell for most people. And if you follow them, it transforms lives. If we do them, we will spark a major religious renewal in America. If we don't do them, well, we can look all around us and see what happens if we don't do them. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.